1 Corinthians chapter 11. In this chapter, Paul has been speaking about various examples of disorder in the church. A few weeks ago, we looked at his description of the women's movement in the first century when uh, the women were rebelling against male leadership in the home and in the local assembly by throwing off their veils and their head coverings as sort of a symbol of their rebellion. We saw last week another example of disorder in the church was uh, the division and heresies. And this morning we want to look at another abuse in the local assembly, and that is the agape feast, beginning in verses 20 through 22. So let's read those, beginning in verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to open the word of God together. And Lord, to consider this event in the life of the assembly at Corinth uh, many, many years ago. And Father, we pray that you would help us to glean truths and principles that we can apply to our own lives and to our own assembly here. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul does not praise the assembly in Corinth for what he has to say in this section. And in this section, he describes their abuse of the agape feast. Now, that might not be so familiar to us because it's not something that churches commonly practice today. <coughs> Notice in verse 20, he was talking about eating the Lord's Supper. And by the way, this is the only place in the Bible where that expression, the Lord's Supper, is mentioned. Normally, we think of the Lord's Supper as a synonym for the Lord's table or communion service, but in the first century, it wasn't exactly the same. The term supper here is a literal meaning of a supper or an earthly, uh, rather, an, the evening meal. So it was a real meal. It was part of a genuine meat and potatoes meal that was uh, shared by believers in the city of Corinth and really, evidently, through much of the early church. And what the believers did in those early days is they had a feast, what they called the agape feast. It was a meal that believers were to share together. And at the end of the agape feast or at the end of that uh, meal, they would have the Lord's portion, which was called the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Meal, which we would call the communion service. So believers gathered together on the Lord's Day to remember the Lord in a communion service, preceded by a meal which they called the Agape Feast. And by the way, it's mentioned at the end of the New Testament a couple of times, this Agape Feast, uh, Peter warned that false teachers uh, were entering into assemblies and feasting with them. 
And Jude said something similar about the false teachers. He said they are spots in your feasts of charities, uh, literally the agape. It was the love feast. And here Paul is dealing with an abuse in the love feast, uh, the agape meal, uh, in the city of Corinth. Now, it was never commanded anywhere in the Bible that this agape feast was to be practiced, but it was practiced in the early church. When the church gathered together for a meal, to have fellowship one with another, to express their love for one another and their unity as members of the body, it would, uh, they would end that with the Lord's table or the communion service. And this is something that just sort of spontaneously arose in, in, early chur- in the early church. It wasn't commanded. It's never, where, it's never commanded anywhere in the New Testament. But it's just something that they did. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. There were many things that occurred spontaneously as the church began. And right from the beginning, we see that believers like to eat together. Not something unusual. Two thousand years later, we still like to eat together. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 46, it says, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So in those very early days of the church, right after uh, the day of Pentecost, when the church just began, they had no revelation of even of what the church was, but believers began to meet together. And originally they met together in the temple area. They had no church building in those days. <laughs> the church just began. And sometimes uh, later on they would meet in larger homes, usually owned by wealthy believers, and there they would gather together for a love feast or an agape supper or agape meal, followed by the Lord's Supper, what we would call the communion service. And notice here that they did this from house to house. Now keep in mind that in Jerusalem, uh, on, in one day, 3,000 souls were saved And so the body of Christ instantly came into being and the church at Jerusalem had a lot of people all at once. And nobody had a home large enough, uh, presumably, to to house 3,000 people meeting together. But they were meeting together evidently in smaller groups for love feasts, the agape meal, and also they would have communion together. It was one church in, in Jerusalem But they often met at various locations because logistically it was basically the only way they could do it. And note also that they met daily. They went from house to house and we're told that they met daily for fellowship. And they met daily for the Lord's table. And so in those early days, believers were excited. They wanted to be together. They were thrilled at what God was doing in their midst. They wanted to express their love for one another, that they are all a kindred, of a kindred spirit. They knew that a brotherhood had begun. And so even though there were no commands for them to have this love feast, they just had it. And so what we have in Acts is the history of what happened. Not necessarily commands to be uh, followed to the T, but a history of what ha- occurred. And notice also in verse 42, 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Here we have a little glimpse into what was important to the church as it came in its purest form from the hands of God. They were interested in doctrine. They were interested in fellowship and sharing together. They were interested in breaking bread or the communion table and in praying. So all of their interests were about Christ and spiritual things. And my prayer is that Salem Bible Church would have the same kind of interest when we meet together for worship. But notice, beginning in verse 44, And all that believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, men as every man had need. And they continued doing these sorts of things daily. So here's a passage that's often misread, misinterpreted. And some have seen in here a justification for Christian communes where it's concluded from reading this passage that believers are expected to sell all their goods and to give it to the church leaders and to live as a commune because after all, isn't that what it says here? Not exactly. It says that they did sell their goods, but it doesn't say that they sold them all at once. That's not the point of the passage. And in verse 44, it says that they were together, but it doesn't mean they lived together. They all lived in the same city and they loved to be together. So they had lots of times for fellowship. In fact, daily there was a time for believers in Jerusalem to get together and to, and to pray and to have the Lord's table and to worship together and to study doctrine. But they all went home at night to their own homes. They didn't live in a commune together. And when... Luke writes in verse 45 that they sold their possessions and goods. It doesn't mean that they sold all of their possessions. Notice that they did this as every man had need. In other words, if someone in the assembly had a real need, he fell into hard times, maybe lost his job, maybe his family had no food to put on the table, God would work in the heart of one believer and maybe he'd sell a goat. He'd sell some of his possessions and use that money uh, to help out a brother in need. And Luke's point is that this sort of thing kept on happening. Not that it happened all at once. Everybody sold all of their possessions. That's not the point. His point is to demonstrate that in those early days, the local church had a sense of community. There was a sense of brotherhood. But it was not a commune. Now look... In chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, we have a similar event that took place a little later. In verse 32, it says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the, that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And neither was any, neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man 
And again, we see according as he had need. So here Luke tells us that even the wealthy believers were engaged in this spirit of generosity that was common in the early church. Great grace, this sense of uh, giving sacrificially to others, this spirit of, of sharing, this spirit of giving uh, just permeated these new believers. They were so thrilled at what God was doing, even though they didn't understand it all. They didn't have the New Testament, but they knew that their Savior was alive. They knew that they were believers in Jesus Christ and that they had eternal life and they were thrilled about this. And so when one of them fell into hard times, they would sell some of their goods. And they brought the money to the apostles and it was distributed, much like the fellowship fund is, is distributed here. Folks give money to the fellowship fund and every penny of that goes to someone in the assembly with a uh, financial need. Now keep in mind that in these early chapters in the book of Acts, Right after that initial honeymoon when the church was able to meet right in the temple area with the other Jews, shortly after that, the Jews began turning against Christianity. And the apostles were persecuted. They were imprisoned in chapter 4 and forbidden to preach the gospel. So things were changing very rapidly in the early church and soon believers were going to have to leave Jerusalem, flee for their lives. Now, the selling of some of the property may have been motivated by a fear of persecution that was coming. Evidently, believers could see the writing on the wall. And so they sold some of their properties and they used that money with the spirit of grace, the spirit of giving to share with needy believers. And they didn't sell it all at once. In fact, the tense of the verb sold here is a present participle indicating that they kept on doing this as the need arose. And so there was a real sensitivity to the poor saints in their midst. There was a real sense of, of sharing together of a brotherhood, of a community of believers in Jesus Christ. And all of this stands in stark contrast in chapter 5 to the selfishness and the lies of Ananias and Sapphira who said they were selling their property but kept back part of it for themselves. And, and, you know, they were rebuked by saying, you didn't have to sell any of it. It was yours. But God smote them dead, not because they didn't sell all their property, but rather because they said they did and lied about it. But that was a rare occasion. That stood in contrast to the general spirit of great grace and sharing and, and this concept of having all of their goods. They didn't really belong to me. They're on loan from me from the Lord. And if a brother has need, I'm going to do what I can to meet that need. That was the spirit that dominated the believers in the early church. Believers cared for one another as members of the same body. And that was a powerful testimony of the love and life of the Lord Jesus Christ operating in their midst. Just as the Lord Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one for another. And so we read in chapter 2 that they ate their food with gladness. 
joy and singleness of heart, that they met together and they were all of one accord, of one mind and one accord, and they broke bread together, they had communion together. So early on, we see that believers loved to get together and share their food together and eat, their, and they ate with gladness and joy, and they got together for the Lord's table, and they did it daily. Now, by the time we get to the epistles and the apostolic days are coming to an end and the churches are becoming a little more organized and now there are pastors and elders and deacons in the assembly. By that time, the church already had a sort of history. It already had a period of traditions that they had uh, just spontaneously arose amongst them, one of which was the agape feast. It wasn't commanded It was just all very natural. It just happened. They loved to be together. They loved to eat together. They loved to share what they had with other believers. And so it was a natural way for believers to get together and eat a meal together, showing their unity and love for each other. And they would end it with the Lord's table or a communion service by showing their love and dedication to the Lord. And so these two meals the Agape Feast and the Lord's Supper in the early church uh, became attached to one another almost spontaneously. Now let's go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul speaks of that. In verse 20 he says, When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now here Paul is speaking about when believers came together in one place, in other words, when they gathered together as one body for corporate worship, this was their formal worship service time, and they all came together in one place, exactly how they did it, we don't know, but they came together in one place. And Paul was rebuking them for the way they came together for worship. You see, coming together for corporate worship is designed to demonstrate the unity of the body. All gathering together in this one place for corporate worship was designed to teach that the body is one, that we are members one of another, and that we are organically united to Christ our head. But unfortunately, when the assembly in Corinth gathered together, there was something terribly wrong with the way they worshipped. And that's what Paul speaks of in this section. And Paul is going to rebuke and expose them for their hypocritical motives in coming together. In other words, they claim to be coming together for the Lord's table. They claim to be coming together to have communion with their holy God. They claim to be coming together to express their love and unity one for another. And it sounded wonderful. But it wasn't true. That's not really why they were coming together. And so Paul pierces right through the hypocrisy and he states, that's not why you were coming together. You're not really coming together for the Lord's table. And so under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul exposed their lie. And you know, this sort of thing can happen in any church on any given Sunday. We'd like to think it never happens here, but I'm sure it does. 
On any Sunday, there's bound to be somebody that shows up in a local assembly who's coming to church all dressed up in his Sunday best with a smile on and, and he wants everybody to believe that he's here to worship the Lord and bow before Him. But God knows the heart. And there may be other motivations. Maybe he's just coming to please his wife or to please his parents or to please his husband or the husband. Not his husband. Her husband. Or perhaps some folks come to church just because it's expected of them or they want to look good or keep up an image of a nice guy. But regardless, we might not know their hearts, but God does. And nobody ever has fooled the Lord. The Corinthians thought they could. They thought they could come. Well, we're coming for the Lord's table today. We're coming to worship God and express our unity with one another. And Paul says, no, no, you're not. That's not why you're coming. What they didn't seem to realize is the fact that neither is there any creature that is not manifest in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We all stand naked and open before the eyes of him with, have, with whom we have to do. And so the Corinthian believers thought that they could put on a happy face and put on their Sunday best and come to church and, and everybody would think that they're worshiping just like everybody else, but Paul knew that they weren't. Nothing escapes the notice of the Lord. He is the last picture that we have of the Lord Jesus is a picture of him in his glory, standing in the the risen Savior, standing in the midst of the churches with eyes as a flaming fire, watching and observing every little thing that takes place, how we worship in the Lord's house in particular. And so when the Corinthians came together for worship, Paul says, when you come together into one place, no, no. This is not for the Lord's table. How did he know it? Well, look in the next verse. He says, for, here's how I know it. For, in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. Here's how Paul knew they weren't coming together for the Lord's table. By their behavior. It didn't take inspiration. Any believer with discernment could have looked at the way this assembly was conducting itself and saying something is wrong here. This doesn't line up with the holiness of God that we know in the Scriptures. Their actions belied their words. You see, they said they were coming together for the Lord's table to remember as a memorial of the Lord's death. They were coming together to think about the cross of Jesus Christ and the kind of death that He died for us. Now, the cross is the ultimate expression of selflessness. And there on the cross of Calvary, Jesus gave Himself for us. He died for us. He put Himself aside. He sacrificed Himself for the spiritual good of others. And so if the Corinthians were genuinely coming together to remember the cross and what it meant, then they would have been expressing selflessness as was expressed in Calvary. They would have been esteeming others better than themselves. They would have been helping those that were in need. They would have let others go before them. They wouldn't have been 
piling up their plates and hoarding all the food to themselves. Rather, they would have been considerate of others. But that's not what they were doing. Here Paul says they were, verse 21, everyone was taking before other his own supper. In other words, they were, they were demonstrating a me-first attitude, a selfishness to the extreme, the exact opposite of what they said they were coming there for, to remember the cross, the example of selflessness. Now, there are two ways to understand how this meal was conducted. It's possible that it was a potluck similar to we have potluck meals here and and there were some that just pushed themselves to the front of the line and took all the good food first and and those at the end of the line went hungry. But it still seems more likely to me uh, that their meals, each family brought their own food. And so the wealthy brought all of their expensive dainties and they just gorged themselves. They overate and they overdrank to the excess while the poor believers who didn't have anything to bring went away hungry. And so either way, his point is that there was no Christ-like spirit being manifested here. And imagine in a meal which was closed by having the Lord's table, some of these believers got drunk. Now, normally, in the first century, wine was commonly drunk, but they would mix it with between three to ten parts of water so that it was no longer an alcoholic beverage. And in their own writings, they said drinking it straight was barbaric. That's what the Bible refers to as strong drink, not mixing the wine with uh, three to ten parts water. And so you would have to drink an awful lot to get drunk. And it appears that the wealthy were just gorging themselves as perhaps they were accustomed to do in their pagan feasts before they became saved. And so Paul wrote, you're really not coming together for the Lord's Supper. You're not really coming together to think about selflessness manifested on Calvary. And their actions proved it. And the agape meal originated as a time for believers to eat together just because they loved to be together and because they wanted to share together and they wanted to express their love and unity for one another and also their consecration to the Lord. Now think of these poor believers leaving this feast hungry. They were evidently hoping that perhaps some of the wealthy believers would see their plight, would see that they had nothing to feed themselves, they had nothing for their children, and maybe this was the only time when these poor folks really had an opportunity to have one decent meal. Remember, the agape meal was supposed to be, it meant love, self-sacrificing for others. It was a way of sharing, demonstrating Christ. And what it meant to be in Christ where there is neither bond nor free, rich nor poor. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In verse 14. In Acts chapter 2, 
when this agape feast originated or when believers started eating together and sharing together, uh, Luke records for us that great grace was upon them. This great spirit of giving and sharing was upon them. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we have Paul's description of how grace giving ought to take place throughout the church age. And look in verse 14. But by an equality, that now at this last time, now at this time, your abundance may be a supply for their want or their lack. That their abundance also may be a supply for your want. That there may be equality. As it is written, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Here is the illustration of giving and sharing that Paul reiterates in the epistles. And as believers gave and they shared together, it was a way of making sure that everybody had their needs met. Those who had abundance would share with those who didn't, those who lacked. And this principle, Paul quotes all the way back from the days in Israel's history, the same principle as when manna fell from heaven. And when manna fell from heaven, every man was to have a certain amount, but some perhaps gathered more than others. And uh, what they would do is those who had gathered more would share with others who didn't gather as much. Maybe more manna fell in one part of the city than another, we don't know. But they, they, they shared so that there was no lack. And the agape meal, this time of believers being together and sharing together, was a time just for that same sort of gracious spirit to be demonstrated. And it was an acknowledgement on the part of the wealthy and anybody that had enough to share that whatever they had was like manna from heaven. God gave them whatever they had. And thus, as believers, they have a responsibility to share. And it was a way of manifesting the indwelling life of Christ. It was a way of expressing their unity in Christ. In Christ, there's neither rich nor poor, bond nor free, red, yellow, black or white, but they were all one. And here was a wonderful way that just arose spontaneously in the early days of the church to express that love and unity in the agape feast. But then we come to Corinth and all the abuses in that church. And here we see some were gobbling up all the best food for themselves and others had nothing to eat and they walked away from a feast hungry. And so this was a proof in Paul's mind that these believers were not really coming together for the Lord's Supper. They were not really coming together to demonstrate their love and unity, their oneness as one body, one loaf. But rather, self-centered flesh was being manifested. You see, on the cross, Jesus died to condemn sin, to condemn that fleshly nature. But they were manifesting it at the very time when they were saying that they were remembering the cross. As for the Corinthians and as well as us, coming together for the Lord's Supper ought to be a time when we remember that we died with Christ and that our old selfish man died with Christ. 
And that old man who was characterized by selfishness and self-centeredness, he's dead, and now we are new creatures in Christ. And that ought to have an effect on the way we treat one another. One of the clearest ways that we can demonstrate that we're believers, that we've been born again, is by the love that we have one for another. And so the Corinthians claim to be coming together to think about the cross, but their actions demonstrated that the cross was really the last thing on their mind. And this was bold-faced hypocrisy in Paul's mind, and he called them on it. Later on, we're going to see in this chapter that because of that, God smote some of them dead. He took their lives for this hypocrisy. It's almost incredible to think that something so pure and loving and gracious that arose spontaneously out of the hearts of uh, folks who were just genuinely thrilled to be born again and to be part of the family of God, something that had such a pure beginning so quickly degenerated into an opportunity to manifest the most extreme examples of selfishness and irreverence in the local church. But that's exactly what happened in Corinth. Now look what Paul says in, back in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 22. He says, What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? Here Paul is rebuking them for turning the agape feast and the Lord's table into a party and a celebration which led to excess. And that often happens when we celebrate. It's so easy for a celebration to turn to excess. So if the Corinthians, Paul said, if you want a party, you have your own house. If you want just to have all your wealthy friends over and eat all the food to yourself, do it at your own house. This is not the purpose of the local assembly. The agape feast was not designed to exclude members of the body from sharing together. It was a time to include them. And so this abuse stands out in stark contrast to what they said they were coming together to do. Now, Paul was not against celebrating. He wasn't against believers having a party, but he was against celebrating and having a party in conjunction with the Lord's table as a time of worship. And he wanted to keep celebrations and parties very separate and distinct from worship and the Lord's table, something I wish our generation would learn. And by the way, you'll never once see in the Bible the word celebrate in the New Testament. We don't celebrate communion. Where did that ever come from? Well, I'm not quite sure, but I know where it didn't come from. It didn't come from the Bible. The first definition for celebrate is to show happiness about or for something. And even though this terminology, celebrate communion or celebrate the Eucharist or celebrate uh, the Lord's table, is very commonly used, it didn't originate from God's Word. And when you stop and think about what the Lord's table is, what word could be more inappropriate? You see, the Lord's table is a memorial service of the death the excruciating, horribly painful death of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I know that folks like to bring the concept of celebration into the church and even into the Lord's table. But celebration isn't the best term to use here. For example, if you, had a, if you just had a baby, that's a time to celebrate. And if someone came up to you and said, we'd like to celebrate with you with the birth of your new baby, that's perfectly appropriate. But just suppose that baby died. Would you go up to those folks and say, we'd like to celebrate with you? It's perfectly inappropriate. And so here, the Lord's table is a, is a memorial service of his death. And the text doesn't say celebrate. It says things like, Soul-searching, examining our hearts before the Lord, repentance, making things right, and warned about being we ought to fear the Lord and fear chastening. Those are the concepts that we find in the Scriptures that deal with this subject, not having a party and celebrating. That led to abuse in Corinth. Now, to everything there's a season. There's a time to have a party and celebrate, and there's also a time to have a somber memorial service and think about the excruciating pain and suffering the Lord Jesus endured on Calvary to purchase our salvation. Paul says, if you want to celebrate, have it at your own house, not in conjunction with the Lord's table. Don't try to change the purpose of the me- or the meaning of the agape feast and the Lord's supper. They were turning the agape feast, which by its name, was supposed to be a love feast, sharing together, and they turn it into an opportunity for self, uh, for self, for gorging and for being selfish. And he didn't want any of that connected with the Lord's table. And by the way, there are a couple more actions or, or consequences of their behavior that Paul points out here. Notice also that Paul says... <clears throat> That they were despising, verse 22 in the middle, or despise ye the church of God? Now, no doubt, the wealthy believers who brought large quantities of very expensive foods and were feasting on them, they probably felt justified. Well, well, this is the food that my family brought, and so this is what we should eat. After all, this is our church procedure. Every family brings their own and they eat their own food. And there's an, if somebody's hungry and they didn't bring in enough, then that's their problem, not mine. Well, Paul said what they were really doing by manifesting that spirit, even though certainly not verbally, their actions demonstrated it. Paul said what you're really doing is despising the church of God. And that means to look down upon, to hold into contempt or to look upon with scorn. Imagine, they were coming together for a love feast, which presumably was to show their love for one another and their love for the Lord. And what they were really doing is despising the church of God. Almost unthinkable. They were treating the church of God lightly, with contempt, looking down upon it. And how did they do that? By mistreating some of the members. Because the body is one. And if we mistreat one member of the body, we're mistreating the whole body. For example, if you punch me in the nose, I don't recommend it, although you've probably been tempted a few times. If you punch me in the nose, that's just one member of my body. 
But it really, you're demonstrating what you think of me. It's not what you think of my nose. It's what you think of me when you treat my nose like that and punch me in the face. Even if you're very kind to my fingers and to my knees and my ankles, if you punch me in the nose, that's you're treating my whole body that way. And so too with the local assembly. When one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. So in God's mind, when one member of that body went home hungry that day because nobody cared, it was as if the whole body was hungry. It's as if the Lord Jesus walked away from a communion service dedicated to, presumably, to honoring Him, and He walked away hungry. Now, Paul knew this firsthand. Paul persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was persecuting a small portion of the body of Christ, Jesus Christ appeared to him. The glorified risen Savior appeared to him and spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? When he persecuted the members of the body, he was demonstrating what he really thought about Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians. When they mistreated the poor members of that body in such a horrible way by sending them away from a feast hungry while they gorged themselves, they demonstrated what they really thought of the Lord Jesus. And he says that their actions shamed the poor. You were despising the church of God and shaming them which have not. So there were divisions in the church. We saw that last week. Not only divisions around, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, but evidently there were divisions, a sort of social or class warfare going on, where the rich had their own little group and the poor had their little group, and they wouldn't share together. And the rich were looking down upon the poor. It was sort of a division between the haves and the have-nots in this assembly. Now, that should never happen. James speaks of that in, in his epistle. But unfortunately, it did happen. And it was a terrible scene. For some saints, this was the only opportunity they had all week, perhaps, for a, for a decent meal for them and their kids. And they went home hungry. But worse than hungry, they went home ashamed. Humiliated. Because of the way their own brethren treated them. Now, we don't know how they were shamed, what the wealthy did, whether they outwardly ridiculed them or publicly humiliated them or pointed the finger, look at those people don't have, even have anything to eat, or whether it was just subtle, sort of snickering in the background. Believers went home with pains in their stomachs and they went home with pains in their hearts. And so it's not surprising to us now when we look back at verse 17 and when Paul said earlier that you're coming together not for the better, but for the worse. Some people left this communion service worse off spiritually than before they came. They were ashamed of their brethren. They felt humiliated. They felt like they were not part of the body that they were not loved, and that they were not important. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth in God's mind. 
In God's mind, even the uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness when God looks down at the body of Christ. And while they had very few worldly goods, they were united to the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him they were blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They had all they needed for life and godliness and the poor could be rich in faith, as James tells us. And they had Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide on their side. So there was no need for them to go home ashamed. It should have been the wealthy believers who walked home ashamed and embarrassed of their behavior. When we come together for the Lord's table, we are to leave behind all earthly bigotry and division. There is no respect of persons in Christ. There's no rich or poor, no red, yellow, black or white. There's no north, south, east or west. We are one loaf when we come together to celebrate. (laughs) Celebrate. (laughs) You see how ingrained that is, being conformed to the way the world thinks? When we come together to remember the Lord's table. Have you ever said it? (laughs) Maybe you have. I hope I don't say it again especially when I'm preaching on it. (laughs) But think of carrying these prejudices to the Lord's table. What a shame. Now, because of these abuses in the Agape Feast in the the first century, most churches have just ceased with the custom altogether. In fact, the church uh, council at Carnage, uh, Carthage rather, prohibited them because of all the abuses. Now, remember... The Bible is our authority, not the church council at Carthage. But it indicates how easily this uh, original feast began to degenerate. Today, there are a few groups, like the Grace Brethren. uh, They include the Agape Feast, and along with it, they have the Lord's Supper, and they have a foot washing, uh, which they consider to be an ordinance as well. So it does still continue, and in a sense, our fellowship night tonight is really based upon this principle. Only because of the abuses and because we don't want uh, the commonness of of eating a regular meal associated with the uniqueness of the Lord's table, we don't have it before, we have it afterwards. But every church has to come up with their own way of dealing with this. So Paul closes this section by saying, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So here's a good warning and a reminder for us all. Ministries, activities, even something as wonderful as a, as a love feast, a time to celebrate and share together. Things that started off ministries or act church activities that started off with such good intentions can easily go terribly wrong. And hence, there is a need for us today to be continually scrutinizing and examining all of the church ministries and functions and practices and activities in light of the word of God, lest we abuse things that should have been to the glory of God. So yes, there are lessons for us in church history, and there are lessons for us in events that happened in the city of Corinth. And God help us. God help us to keep Christ first and to be focused on him so that our worship would be characterized by reverence 
and characterized by a a healthy spiritual fear of God and a desire to honor him above all things and not to feast and feed our flesh. Good principle for the 21st century. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had to meditate upon it. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us, help us to apply principles to our own personal lives and our own walk with thee. And Lord, also to the life of this assembly, we pray that all that is done here would be to your honor and glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.